you got to get it right. The bottom line, you got to get it right. There was more than one penalty uh, on that play. I mean, to me, when you break it down, it is the worst no call in NFL history. The Cajun Cannon, Bobby Bear, former Saints quarterback, now radio host for the New Orleans Saints, weighing in on the Dan Patrick Show on the hubbub in the football world, the big non-call, the New Orleans Saints against the Rams in the NFC Championship game. We'll get to that and much more on the Bucks and our three and out segment. This is A Few Extra Bucks on PeterPyrus.com. I'm Mike Neighbors. We're going to bring in our esteemed producer, Justin Thomas, and our Buccaneer insider, Roy Cummings, in just a bit. But off the top, I want to thank our title sponsors, House of Brews and Sea Dog Brewing Company, House of Brews and Lutes on the corner of North Del, Bay, North Del Mabry and Van Dyke, Sea Dog Brewing Company, two great locations on the beach, Treasure Island, and in Clearwater, great brews, great food, great, great service. Justin Thomas, uh, you know what? We always like to talk on these podcasts that we don't have a big pre-show meeting because we like to keep it really kind of real and raw with our listeners. But, uh, what'd you think of the, the non-call? Uh, I mean, it was obviously a huge, huge non-call. I don't know if it's the biggest non-call in NFL history, but it, it definitely is in the second biggest game, I guess you could say outside of the Super Bowl. So, uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if this leads to any changes. Yeah, I think there have been definitely worse calls in sports, uh, especially in other sports. But in terms of the game of football in the NFL, you could debate. I know we're all prisoner of the moment and everything, but you could debate if this was the worst ever. I'll bring in Roy. Roy, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this. I want to preface my feelings by first saying I hate people who make excuses about calls. That's always been a pet peeve of mine because every team gets bad calls in football games. But I thought in this one, though, you know, people could say, well, the Saints won the toss in overtime and Drew Brees threw an interception. It never should have gotten to that point. And I know the Saints should have scored more in the red zone early on. But at that juncture, the game was so much on the line. I know you had Des Bryant's catch, no catch a few years ago. I thought this was just uh, unbelievable in so many ways, Roy. Yeah, I I have a hard time. Um, I can't think of a more egregious error by an official in a game than this. Um, there have been a lot of bad calls. It seems it seems every year, uh, right around playoff time, whether it's the championship game or uh, you know the, the division round or the Super Bowl itself, there is a call that ends up becoming the narrative for a week or two around the NFL. And it's usually a mistake. And um, this obviously ranks right up there with the most, again, it's to me, it's the most egregious mistake that a, an official has made in the playoffs. Um, you know, cause a lot of times these things get corrected. A lot of times it's, it's a judgment call. There, there was no judgment here. It, it was blatant. And the thing that I'm, I'm curious about is, you know, what was the official actually thinking? You know, some of the videos taken from the stands, uh, show that there was an official looking right at it, no more than five, six, seven, ten yards away at the most. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I mean, you could have called any number of of penalties there. It's pass interference. It was an unnecessary roughness. It was a helmet to helmet hit. Um, the player admits it was pass interference. Everybody knows it was pass interference, except apparently the official. Why it wasn't corrected on the field, I don't know. Um, it's egregious. Is that the reason the Saints lost? Certainly, you can make that argument. I, I'll stand on the side of, you know, you got to go play defense. You had a three-point lead. 
um, yeah. you know, and a few other issues, uh, I think, led to their loss. But look, there's no question. This is right up there. It's uh, it's as bad a mistake as an official has made. And it's another to me, it's another black eye on the NFL. Every year they seem to have a problem. And going into some of their biggest games, the narrative is about officiating uh, and not the, the play on the field, the actual play on the field. And I think it's bad for the league. Now, this is a Bucks podcast, but we like to cover the hot topics of the NFL. And as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, we're going to be with you the entire offseason. We're not just shutting it down after the regular season. We're a year-round podcast. And we're going to touch on the Senior Bowl coming up. We're going to touch on the Bucks trip to London, an NFC South game, by the way, and also an exit to their coaching staff of a, uh, a guy who was uh, kind of a, an electric guy on the staff a year ago. But um, I want to throw this at you, Roy, because we are a Bucks podcast you covered the Bert Emanuel game, the 1999 NFC Championship game. Um, how would you compare, uh, you know, what happened with Bert Emanuel's kind of, you know, non-catch there to, to this call? Well, the Bert Emanuel uh, mistake or call was obviously the, the kind of the tip of the iceberg of a bigger problem that I don't think the NFL has got right yet. The closest the game was a year ago. So you're talking almost 20 years now before yeah. the NFL got it right in terms of what is a catch. That Bert Emanuel call uh, sparked the entire debate over what is and what is not a catch in the NFL. Um, to me, one of the silliest debates ever brought up in sports. Um, how can we not know what a catch is? Um, we know what a catch is in baseball. Uh, I think we, you know, we. how can you not know what a catch is in, in football? And yet the NFL uh, continues to struggle to really figure that out. But again, that was an interpretation of the rule, of a rule that was poorly worded. This is a blatant, uh, just, you know, they're ignoring of what the actual rule is in states, and, 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 and that's a mistake. So the mistake here is not that there's a misinterpretation of the rule, but a misinterpretation of, you know, what needs to be called. So this was blatant. I mean, again, as I said before, everything about the uh, the play says it's pass interference. You know what's amazing is my uh, youngest daughter is a marginal sports fan at best, and she got home from school today, and obviously she goes to school in Tampa, and she tells she goes to middle school, and she said, "Daddy, everybody's talking about that Saints game and that terrible call. Can they fire those officials?" I mean, to me. <laughs> There, there are, are people who were touched by this play, Roy, who have no dog in the fight. You have people in Cincinnati or Minnesota or Arizona. That shows how bad the call is to me. And, you know, I, I was at the game and I covered the game. And being in the Superdome and hearing how loud it was early in the game and after that, you know, it was it was a helpless feeling in that Superdome. Fans were, were angry. And, it's you know, I can't imagine being the officials – on the field because you know how it is when they break it down. One official usually watches a different receiver. And how do you watch that receiver? And you're right in front of him. You got the side judge and you missed that call. I asked Drew Brees about the play afterwards. You had an opportunity late and your head coach, Sean Payton, said the pass interference call on Tommy Lee Lewis was a call he'll never forget. Uh, one of the most obvious pass interference calls he's ever seen. What was your take on that call and, and how tough was that? Well, so I, I didn't really see it. I, um... I said live, so to speak. You know, I'm throwing the ball to Tommy yeah. Lee to kind of a spot, and, right. and the defender 
makes his way over there and obviously hits him well before the ball gets there. And, and, and I think we all felt like it was it was very, very obvious. And yet, um, man, for that to be missed in, in that situation um, is, uh, is painful. It's very painful. The acknowledgement of it by the league, it doesn't make it any better. Yeah, I'd like to have heard the phone call uh, between Sean Payton and the NFL. Maybe one day we'll get the tape after the game, but uh, I'm sure that was uh, uh, maybe entertaining, to say the least. But, but, Roy, let me ask you this, and this is probably preposterous a little bit. Maybe I should have saved this for our three and out. But what's worse, uh, the Bucks season walking away or the Saints season? I know you have an NFC South title. I know you're number one top seed, but the Bucks. And the Saints fan base right now, the Bucks have had a few weeks to kind of get excited about Bruce Arians. Now the Saints fan base, who looks so much better than the Bucks fan base a few weeks ago, you know, they're wondering, maybe we only have one year left of the Peyton Breeze era. You know, it's funny how things can change so quickly with one call and maybe one game in the NFL. Yeah, it really is. Uh, look, it's tougher to be the Saints. You were, on the, you were on the cusp of going to the Super Bowl. And again, I think you're good enough to win it. Um, I think they were the best team in the NFC throughout the course of the year. Yeah, they faded down the stretch a little bit. I think that showed up in this game as well. Um, it certainly showed up in uh, in the last minute and a half of the game in regulation and overtime and obviously uh, or even early on when they only put up 13 points when they had a chance to put up 21. But at the end of the day, they they aren't going to the Super Bowl because in, in part because of a bad call, a missed call by an official. Uh, the Bucks didn't get to the playoffs because they just weren't good enough. So um, it, it's it's much tougher to be a Saints fan right now um, th- than it is to be a Bucks fan. The Bucks didn't even earn an opportunity to be in the conversation uh, about the Super Bowl or even the playoffs, much less. So um, you know, whereas the Saints, uh, they're in that conversation. They, I, I think a lot of people had them as Super Bowl favorites, and uh, and they got that opportunity robbed. So it's it's really unfortunate. Yeah, it kind of goes back to would you rather get blown out or would you rather lose a game like that? And often it's much easier to get blown out because the emotions aren't so crazy afterwards. Though, we're going to let go of this uh, no-call thing. But to me, the most damning part of this is the guy who made the play, Rams corner nickel, or Nick Roby Coleman, who's actually from uh, nearby uh, Frostproof, Florida, in the Tampa Bay area. This is what he had to say. You know, he's not really holding back here about his innocence in the call at all. Uh, Darrell got up, you know, when I got up, he said incomplete. So, you know, I just was like, thank you. Like, Yeah, that, that kind of says it all, Roy. You know, you know, they, they replayed the pine tar game with George Brett. What if the NFL just replayed the last four minutes? That would obviously never happen. But, uh, you know, there, there is some precedence, right? You had the pine tar game. Yeah, but again, that's, that's an interpretation of the rule. I mean, you look at that one and, uh, you know, George Brett's bat, the, the pine tar was well above the label. Um, the rule says it can't be. Um, he hit the home run. Uh, you know, to me, hey, that's, that's great timing on the part. Uh, it was great timing on the part of the Yankees. Uh, they, they were waiting for a significant moment uh, to call that. And uh, if they, they said to themselves, if that moment occurs, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna call it. Same thing happened in the, um, the first Stanley Cup finals that I ever covered, the 1993 finals. Uh, the, the Los Angeles Kings of Wayne Gretzky and, uh, and the Montreal Canadiens, then coached by uh, Jacques Demers. The Canadiens um, noticed that uh, uh, Marty McSorley's uh, stick uh, was, was an illegal stick. And when he scored a goal in overtime, 
to, uh, to, to seemingly give them an edge. Uh, they, they challenged it and ended up being a penalty. Kings end up scoring, or the Canadians end up scoring on the uh, ensuing power play, and uh, that was that. I, I think I actually wrote one of my greatest leads um, ever off of that game. I, I, I wrote something along the lines of, you know, the Stanley Cup Finals is a measure of a player's integrity, you know, a measure of his, you know, skill, toughness, et cetera. It's also a measure of his integrity. And uh, on, on, the, on the in game one of the Stanley Cup Finals, Marty McSorley's didn't measure up. Neither did his stick. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's in the Cummings top five, I believe. Yeah, it was in my to top five, I think. <laughs> yes. On deadline, by the way. Wow. See, that's how you roll, man. That's how that's I roll. we have you on here. Um, all right, let's let's get away from that. But I think that's kind of the hubbub in the NFL right now. And and and, and I will say one more thing though. Um, to fix this, to me, last point on this, I think they have to do two things, Roy. You know, we're baseball guys. You know, why can Major League Baseball have the mothership in New York monitor every call every time there's a replay? They check in with the mothership. Uh, the NFL needs that, especially when they have two frigging games. That's all they got to worry about. And also. Let them challenge the pass interference. It's time for that. If they're going to make it a pass-happy league, you got to have a challenge for pass interference. Totally agree. Absolutely agree 100%. Um, look, I'm in favor of seeing everything challengeable and leave it up to the coaches. I wouldn't change the rules in terms of how many challenges they get, um, but I would make everything challengeable. If you want to challenge uh, a holding call, go ahead, challenge. You want to call an off, yeah. challenge an offsides call, call. Because you know what? Let's go to the AFC game, and I think the Chiefs could have uh, easily challenged a roughing the passer call uh, that, that hurt them and, and won that argument. So there's a lot of arguments to be won. Um, I'm, I'm 100% in favor of seeing uh, the, uh, the challenges expanded, um, not, not the number, but, but what is reviewable and what can be challenged. You have the technology use it, NFL. And uh, Roger Goodell, I'm not sure if you have a pulse, but the game was Sunday. And, uh, you know, we're a few days away. It'd be nice to hear from you. You know, there's, there's lawsuits in New Orleans. They're talking about having a parade, which is all kind of nonsense to me. But it'd be good, it'd <laughs> yeah. be good to hear from Roger Goodell. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just a, just, just a bad look all around. It's unfortunate. He's not going to talk until uh, the Friday before the Super Bowl at the annual, uh, you know, his annual State of the League address. And, and to me, I mean, look, unfortunately, what's going to happen here is we're going to have a good solid week maybe plus of talk about this issue. And then it's going to die down a little bit because we'll go into uh, the Super Bowl and, and everybody will be talking about that. And, and then all of a sudden it's going to come back up on that Friday because somebody, uh, likely Mike Triplett or uh, you know one of the guys from New Orleans, could be you, uh, Mike Neighbors, uh, is going to go there. It could be you, Justin. And, and he's going to say, Roger, you know, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm not a big victim guy, not a big blame the refs call, but from Bounty Gate to NFL didn't have anything to do with the uh, Minnesota Miracle, but between Bounty Gate, the Minnesota Miracle, and this, uh, boy, that, that Peyton Breeze era, I don't care even if they win a Super Bowl next year, it'll be the what-if era because there are so many what-ifs. What if Sean Payton hadn't been suspended? What if, what if they hadn't had the Minnesota Miracle? And what if they would have gotten that call against the Rams? So who knows? Yeah, right. Let's move on to the Senior Bowl, something you and I, uh, especially you, covered for years and years and years. And, you know, you can count so many success stories 
in the Buccaneer draft. I think one recently that kind of sticks out, Ali Marpet is a big success story from the Senior Bowl. What do you make of this week, and, and how much can the coaches get out of this? You can get a lot. Um, it's your first opportunity, really, to uh, uh, get a, a hands-on, you know, an up-close look at the players. And it's only the seniors. It's not the juniors. And, and usually you're talking, you know, a lot of juniors are going to be in the first uh, two, three rounds of the draft. Uh, if they're not, they probably shouldn't uh, come out. But, um, you know, it's, it's a big week. A, a lot of decisions are made here uh, regarding players throughout the draft, not just first-round picks, but um, second-round picks, third-round picks. Um, it's, it's a great opportunity to get to know players, learn a little bit more about them. You can have an opportunity to, to talk to them. It's a very open uh, situation. It's interesting. After practice, I mean, these, the, the players are – uh, usually descended upon by scouts and sometimes coaches and general managers themselves. And they have meetings set up uh, for throughout the week in Mobile. And uh, it's like an NFL convention there, guys. And uh, uh, everybody's represented and they get the, these, this firsthand look at the players. And, and it's all about the practices. Um, it's interesting. Coaches uh, and GMs don't much care about the game. They'll, they'll see that on tape if they want to look at it. But they're more interested in watching how these kids practice. Um, that's where they end up seeing uh, the real raw talent and where the skills really lie because these guys are run through drills that, in essence, are designed to uh, show you exactly what kind of skill set they have in terms, you know, as a cornerback, you know, can he sink his hips? Can he turn his body quickly? You know, he's got the tw quick twitch you're looking for uh, with offensive linemen. You know, how, how quick is his, uh, is his uh, explosion off the line? How good is his punch? Um, how low does he get? Does he get leverage in terms of pad level, that kind of thing? So uh, it's, a, it's a real technical, uh, you know, kind of kind of school. It's, it's, it's very interesting. That was better than Mel Kuyper right there. That was that was some solid <laughs> lingo. I love it. I'm jacked for the draft now, man. I can't wait. And I don't have a helmet for hair. So, uh, you know. <laughs> You know what, Roy? I mentioned Ali Marpet. I mean, you covered the Senior Bowl for years, and I'm thinking about, you know, sometimes you forget how old you are. I remember covering LaDainian Tomlinson at the Senior Bowl. I remember it's a great place to do live shots for television. You set up and do live shots there, and you just get all kinds of guests, coaches. I mean, it's a mecca of uh, – that's how it used to be anyway. I know it's changed a little bit, but um, what what is there a story of a Bucks draft pick that you remember? Anything that stick out at all from the Senior Bowl over the years? Um, yeah, actually, um, you know, there have been a few uh, that, that, that you look at, and, you know, you see the guys, um, you know, the Bucks for a long time, you know, for a while, they, they, they coached in this game. And, and that's, that's where the, the real advantage is. I've always been surprised at teams that, um, that, that uh, passed on the opportunity to coach at these games. It's happened a lot. Yeah. Um, but when the Bucks had the opportunity, they, they embraced it because – uh, it's such an opportunity to to really get to know guys and to figure out what they're about. And it's usually when teams coach a guy that they um, they get a chance to to steal a guy. Sean King was a perfect example of a guy who the Buccaneers, uh, Tony Dungy and his crew, uh, coached that Senior Bowl. And Sean King was on their was on their team, and it was through that uh, experience that they decided we're, we're, we're going to draft this kid. We we want Sean King to be part of our football team. Um, it's happened with uh, several players uh, in their history. Uh, they, they've done that where they go to the senior bowl and either coach them or they, you know, they just lock in on a guy and say, 
that guy right there was at the senior bowl. Donovan, uh, Ali Marpet is, is a very good recent example of a guy who the Bucks went to the senior bowl, had an idea, thought they knew about him. They'd never seen him. But uh, with every pa- each passing day, uh, they, they said, that's our guy. We, we're we're going to find a way to get that guy. Interesting. Well, we're going to dive into the draft at length in the coming weeks and months. But, you know, looking at this draft right now, Roy, it's a different draft setup than a year ago because it was such a quarterback-heavy draft a year ago. But now it's almost consensus that the Arizona Cardinals are going to select Nick Bosa, the defensive end out of Ohio State, who was injured this year and, and probably wisely uh, sat out and, and, and healed himself up. And then you have the Niners. They're not going to get a quarterback. The Jets aren't going to get a quarterback. Raiders aren't going to get a quarterback. And well, well, well. Then you have the Bucks at number five. Now, I think a couple interesting things could happen if you're Jason Light. Dwayne Haskins, of course, and uh, you know there, there are some other big quarterbacks that teams may move up for. You wonder if Jason Light may trade down from that number five if there's a team like the Jaguars who want to trade up and, and get a quarterback early. Yeah, I think they're going to be in position to, to make a move if they want to. Um, you know, Jason Light obviously has proven he is not afraid to move down uh, in the draft. He's done it uh, the last couple of years. He's done it several times. Um, he's a fan of it. He likes to pick up an extra pick or two. Second or third round hasn't always worked out uh, in terms of either who he picked or uh, the, the pick that he ends up getting. So maybe uh, he'll, he'll think of it a little bit differently this year and just say, you know what? I got a top five pick. Let's take we're a team that could use uh, one of those top five talents. So they may they may just stick to their guns this year and uh, and stay put. But certainly there's going to be an opportunity there, I think, uh, for them to because what happens is uh, quarterbacks always get elevated for some. You know, for, well, I guess the reason is that you know it's 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 a uh, it's it's a um, a quarterback driven league. So. Uh, there's always, uh, you know, some team that's that's going to overpay for quarterbacks, and that's exactly what will happen this year, too. Dwayne Haskins is probably the guy that everybody will overpay for. There may actually be another one or two uh, that get up into that mix at some point. We'll see. But Drew Locke. Uh, you know, could be Daniel Jones, Duke, or, or Drew Locke. Yeah, take yeah. your pick. But um, they'll get elevated for some strange reason, and um, so the Bucks may have an opportunity to do something. The other thing that could happen, if the Bucks are clear that they're going to take you know, who knows that they want a maybe a, a, an edge rusher, you know, a guy like maybe Josh Allen or Rashawn Gary or somebody like that. And somebody else is afraid that they're going to lose out on Josh Jacobs, the running back. Um, you know, they, they would move down a spot or two, um, you know, to give somebody that opportunity as long as the players that they're looking at it, maybe they've, they've got two guys uh, rated just as highly or whatever. They feel like, look, you know, I'll move down two spots because either way, I'm still going to get you know one of the two guys that I really like here. I've got them both ranked at the same spot. So this is when all that stuff kind of starts to happen. And uh, by the time everybody gets to the combine, uh, this is when the work gets done now. Uh, by the time everybody gets to the combine, usually the draft board is set. And really, by the time you get there, it's really you're just confirming uh, what your scouts have already, uh, the information your scouts have already given you. You know, a guy that I see uh, on a lot of mock drafts for the Bucks at number five, I think if they trade down, would still be there maybe a few picks later, is Greedy Williams, a cornerback from LSU. Now, he's not at the senior bowl. He came out early. A uh, really athletic kid, maybe not the most polished cornerback so far. But I'm seeing Greedy Williams' name a lot in these mock drafts. Yeah, you are. You're going to see his name a lot, and uh, you're going to see a lot of names. Um, look, fans have a tendency to – overrate players as well 
Um, they'll look at guys and say that, uh, you know, the Bucks need to go get him because they need a cornerback. And Greedy Williams will be, you know, one of the first first guys that they look at, or or, or maybe a Byron Murphy or somebody like that. Um, but you got to be careful. Uh, look, the scouts pretty much know what they're doing. You don't want to overpay for somebody. And, and right now, depending on whose draft board you're looking at or whose rankings you're looking at, Greedy Williams is either a top five player or he's a possibly early second round player. Um, you know, you, it depends. And so that's what this process right now, it's too soon. This is why mock drafts in February and actually mark mock drafts in a good, good chunk of March are, are really a waste of your time. Um, because you, ju- you just don't know where every team sits and how they've ranked players yet. That, that work is still going on. Uh, Greedy Williams is a heck of a football player. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, some scouts believe he's got all, all pro skills, uh, possibly the best, best press coverage uh, corner in the, in, in the draft. But is he a first-round pick? Probably. Is he a top five? Not right now, according to most legitimate scouts. Um, again, you have to – you can't overrate what it is you think you need um, and then go chasing guys uh, just because you think they fit what you need. You can't do that. you got, you got to let the draft come to you a little bit. Yeah, to me, you know, when you look at this draft, Roy, at number five, if they stay there, is there one position they really got to key in on or are you a big fan of the best, uh, best player available? Well, in this case, be, with the, the way I look at the Buccaneers, I think they're a team that is, that is close to being a playoff caliber team. I think they've got to fill a couple of holes. Cornerback is one of them, okay? That's one. Um, I think defensive line is another. A lot's going to depend on whether they decide to be a base 3-4 or 4-3 team or if they're just going to run a, a multiple of, uh, of those kind of schemes as a, as a one-gap uh, one team. Uh, and the other thing, obviously, they're going to have to get a tackle to replace DeMar Dotson. This is the draft, I think, where you have to do that. Um, well, then you have to decide when do you do that. Uh, is it the first round? Is it? I, I think at number five, the way the, the Buccaneers probably should just take the best player available because it's more than likely going to be a defensive lineman. Okay, uh, it could be a running back. I wouldn't spend money on one oh. there. Uh, it could be an offensive tackle, but the likelihood of it being the, the offensive tackle the Bucks want uh, is a little shaky. Uh, you know, you're probably the best offensive tackle. Uh, in, in the draft right now is a right tackle. And, and so, you know, is, is that really what you want? Um, so, you know, Jawan Taylor, he's, he's more of a right tackle. And a lot of people think he's going to be a guard in the NFL. So, again, this is a situation where he's a, he's a University of Florida player. A lot, of, a lot of people in Tampa will overrate him because he's a Gator. They'll, they'll think he's a better player than he is. <clears throat> you know, he's, he's, he's probably not, not a top five pick. Um, and he's probably a right tackle at best. If he's a tackle, he's probably a right guard in the NFL. So for people to suggest he's the pick, that might be uh, a bit of a stretch. So, again, let the draft come to you. If you're picking between between two or three defensive ends and you feel like you're in pretty good shape at the defensive end position, don't worry about it. You know what? Jason Pierre-Paul Pierre Paul's not going to play forever either. Right. Can you give me a name from this week's Senior Bowl? I know you always do your homework with this stuff that uh, could be a possibility for the Bucks, or are we way too early? Because I know we'll probably do Cummings mock draft uh, 8.0 by the time we reach April. But is there is there a guy that kind of intrigues you 
at the Senior Bowl this week? Well, there is a guy who I like uh, out of Kentucky, Josh Allen. He's an edge rusher. He's a top five player virtually no matter who you talk to uh, at this point anyway. He is a top five talent. Um, you know, how it all shakes out between now and draft day is a little bit different. We'll see where he's at. But to me, uh, he, he fits everything that they're looking for. He's an impact player right away. Um, I like what he, what he does in terms of uh, getting off him. He's got great quickness. He's, got, he's kind of a tall, lanky guy. I mean, he looks the part. And that's something else that teams do. They'll go there. You know, they'll have their chart. They'll say, look, I want my, I want my edge rushers to be six foot five at least, 290 pounds, no, no more. Um, I want them to you know, have this kind of quickness. They got to do this in the cone drill. They got to do this in the in certain drills. And if they meet those measurements, they stay right where they're at in terms of their uh, their draft grade. And he's so he's a guy I'd be looking at. Um, you know, but again, if you're talking about you know trading down a little bit, eh, you know Andre Dillard. Now there's an offensive tackle uh, who could probably play a little, play a little bit on the left side. If you're not a fan of Donovan Smith, uh, this is again we're talking about guys who are at the Senior Bowl. Andre Dillard. Offensive tackle out of Washington State. Um, he can play left tackle. Uh, he, he's got all the skills for it. Would give you an opportunity to move a guy like Donovan Smith to right tackle, which might be his better spot. So that's another guy I'm looking at at the Senior Bowl this week. Um, and, you know, so there's two names right there that I think uh, everybody should look at. Another guy, Montez Sweet, edge rusher out of Mississippi State. Um, skill player, but my guess is he's not going to be in the range where the Buccaneers are going to be picking. They, if they trade way down, that's a guy they could look at. Montez Sweet, Mississippi State uh, defensive end. This seems to be a draft, and I know all the drafts are different, where um, I don't know how deep it is, but it seems like it, the more picks they get, because they have a lot of needs, especially on the defensive side of the ball, boy, if they could get a good deal, if somebody's quarterback thirsty and they can trade with them, it seems like the kind of draft where they could really capitalize on that. Well, they can. And he, you know what I said before about uh, guys like Greedy Williams, just because he doesn't, and, and let's just say, let's just say for the sake of the argument, the greedy Williams never jumps up into the top five the way some people think he's going to jump into the top five. Let's say that he ends up ranked, you know, fifteenth. Okay, that's where it makes sense for the Buccaneers to possibly move out of the top five if they think that everything else in the top five or ten doesn't really help them as much, and they they're targeting a guy like uh, greedy Williams or Nasir Adderley, a safety. Uh, out of Delaware, if they're looking at guys like that, that's where it makes sense for you to move down, take someone else's first-round pick, add a third-round pick, try to combine that, because now maybe you can double up on cornerbacks early on. Maybe get two before you even get to your second-round pick. That could happen, and that makes a lot of sense. So um, just because a guy like, say, Green Williams, again, doesn't fit into the top five, doesn't mean he's not a target for the Buccaneers. He could be, because that's where... The uh, that's where the trade down uh, really benefits you if that's who you're targeting. If you think, you know what, we've got to come away from this draft with two impact cornerbacks, they have a way to do it. They've got the ammunition at number five. All right, let's get into the, a couple hot topics. Uh, kind of uh, the news on, uh, where's today, Tuesday. Uh, Brinson Buckner, boy, he was he came in with a lot of energy on Dirk Cutter's staff, but he's now on Chucky's staff. He's uh, The Raiders hired Brinson Buckner as their new defensive line coach. Uh, there was some thought that Bruce Arians was going to keep him. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, um, I'm not surprised that he wasn't kept. Uh, you know, and, and largely because I didn't. I don't think he's that good of a coach. 
he was a heck of a player, um, but I didn't see him do anything with the Bucks defensive linemen this year that stood out to me. I mean, uh, yeah, the Bucks had a few more sacks, but I think that just came courtesy of their raw talent. I didn't see him do anything special with uh, with anybody on the line. Um, you know, Vita Vea became a nice player uh, once he got healthy uh, and got in shape. Um, Gerald McCoy, I think, took a little bit of a step backwards. It might have just been a natural step backwards, but I didn't see him doing anything uh, new this year that he hadn't done before. Um, uh, I didn't see him do anything with Noah Spence, which to me, if I'm Brenson Buckner, I'm saying, well, that's, that's job one. I've got to turn that guy into a player. This team spent a number two pick on him, uh, second round pick. Uh, I've got to turn him into a, an effective player, and it didn't happen. Um, Carl Nassib was a nice pickup. Uh, I think, yeah. again, he just, I think he just, you know, ex- succeeded off a of raw skill. I didn't see Brenton Buckner do anything special with this group. And my guess is the Buccaneers see it the same way. Uh, because, again, here's a guy who, uh, you know, that, uh, that is known by the new coach, Bruce Arians, and, uh, and certainly known by, uh, by uh, Jason Light, and he's not part of the team anymore. So he doesn't get any love for uh, Vita Vey's improvement or Nassib at all, huh? No, no, I don't give him any love for that. Um, <laughs> no, Carl Nassib's not a, not a chump. Uh, pretty good football player. Drafted yeah. pretty high. Um, I think he just found it. You know, he got comfortable in a spot finally and uh, uh, developed a little bit of confidence off some success. And good for him. Uh, good player. Keep him around. But Brenton Buckner, uh, you can do better than that in terms of defensive line coaches. All right. Uh, our last buck headline before we get to three and out. All uh, oh, back to London again. Back to London next season. And it's an NFC South game. they got to give up an NFC South home game to go to London. Is that fair? Well, it's how the system works. And, I, you know, I had somebody on Twitter tweet me this week, you know, how is it that the Bucks always give up one of these games, uh, a home game, to their, uh, you know, to, to go to London? And I, I, I had a simple answer. I said, check out the actual attendance figures for games at RJS, Raymond James Stadium. Your answer oh. is right there. And that's oh. it. You know, you know who's impacted by this? About twenty to 30,000 Bucks fans. That's it. Not a million, not a hundred thousand, the twenty or thirty thousand that actually show up at games every week, those are the ones who are affected by it. Um, and so it's an opportunity for the Bucks to go and you know what? They'll, they'll have twenty thousand Bucks fans in uh, in London. They've got a great um, UK club over there, Bucks fan club, uh, run by Paul Stewart. Got great guy. Uh, the two times I've been to London, he's been nothing but the most gracious host. Um, Proud to say he's a good friend of mine, um, and uh, I'm glad he's getting to see his team uh, firsthand without having to cross the pond. So as many Bucks fans are as upset as uh, the amount of USF fans that attend most games, I guess. That's about it, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, well, that said, Justin, you know what time it is. Yes, I do. Three and out, baby. Three questions, and we're out of here. And uh, we're going to touch a little bit of everything in this three and out. Uh, number The first rule, though, in 2019, remember, we have to have Justin go first, Roy, to make yeah, this uh, a better podcast. Okay? Justin is the leadoff hitter, then Roy, and then I'm merely the third hitter. So um, first question in our three and out, who has a better future with Bucko Bruce Arians in the coming years, Gerald McCoy or Donovan Smith? Ooh, um, 
Or I guess you could say none of the above if you want to. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a good answer. <laughs> Uh, I feel like Gerald McCoy is probably on his way out. And Donovan Smith, I don't know if he has much left in him. Um, I'll go with none of the above. Maybe Roy can change my mind. He's good at that. That was my good – I did a lot of radio this week after the uh, non-call. My God, that was crazy. And I did the uh, the, – it was kind of a multiple-choice question with the NFL officials. It was – would it be uh, helmet to helmet, A – uh, B, would it be pass interference? Or C, would it be none of the above? And they chose C. So go ahead, Rob. <laughs> That's good. That's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. My turn? Yes. Donovan Smith, uh, simply because he has more upside. Uh, Buck spent a second-round pick on him. Uh, again, I have been a – I'm not going to go as far as to say I'm a Donovan Smith fan, but the Buccaneers are, I believe, and I think they still will be even after Bruce Arians and his new offensive line coach have, uh, uh, have looked at the tape. Um, he's a very sturdy player uh, in the Buccaneers scheme. I'll say it again, folks. Um, he is forced to do a lot of things that other left tackles are not. Uh, a lot of offensive schemes are designed to get the ball out quickly. The Bucs scheme under Dirk Cutter, and it'll probably be the same under Bruce Arians, is not designed to get the ball out quickly. It's designed to throw it downfield. That requires a left tackle to spend spend a little bit more time uh, on his block, uh, usually about another second and a half more than most left tackles. So therefore, he's going to be exposed a little bit more. He's going to get beaten a little bit more. And the other thing you got to remember, in in a four vertical scheme, which is what Dirk Cutter ran and which uh, very similar to what uh, Bruce Arians runs, everybody's going out. And four verticals means you got four guys basically running downfield and somebody coming in underneath, and, and that's your, your bailout target. Uh, in those situations, folks, there's no chip blocker, okay? Um, you're not getting help from a tight end. You're probably not getting a whole lot of help from a running back. It's all on that left tackle. He's out there on an island. I think the Buccaneers uh, realize that. I think it's one of the reasons they're, uh, they're in essence, pleased with Donovan Smith. And why Donovan Smith will continue to be uh, one of this team's uh, starting tackles. I won't say left tackle. Could, could move to the right side. Because um, you go back and look at his draft uh, uh, grades, a lot of people thought he was more suited as a right tackle. If they can find a better option at the left side, they'll uh, move him to the right and stick with him. Uh, that's my prediction. And who would have thought we'd be saying that a year ago? But that's the nature of the NFL. With coaching changes, with uh... – you know, everything that happens so fast in this league, you never know. I have to agree with you. I don't think Donovan Smith's the best left tackle in the world. Not even close, maybe. But uh, Gerald McCoy, it just seems like the tea leaves are there that he's not going to come back. I like the the picture they had. I think it was on Buccaneers.com of he and Bruce Arians shaking hands uh, at the facility. But it just seems like he's not a part of that future. But we'll see. You know, a lot can happen in the coming months. Okay, we talked about the non-call earlier in the podcast. That's the, the big story in the NFL right now. But what's the worst call ever in sports? Like the worst, worst ever. I have three finalists, and if if you don't know these or if you differ, I guess you could go off the board. But Armando Galarraga was pitching a perfect game, and the umpire blew it in the ninth inning and deprived him of the perfect game. It was a blatant, terrible call. Took a perfect game away from him. The ump knew it right afterwards. That's before they had a replay. That was a bad call. I go back to the 83 World Series. Dan Dinkinger made a terrible call at first base that uh, blew the World Series at that time. Then you have the 72 
Olympics men's basketball, Russia against the United States, I believe. And that was a bad one as well. Um, Justin, you're younger than Roy and I. So I don't know if any of these um, hit you at all. You can go off the board if you want, but those are kind of my three finals. <laughs> Uh, I do have to go off the board. I, you're right. I wasn't alive for either of the none of those. I don't follow baseball, so although losing a perfect game does kind of suck. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. By the way, the, the Dinkinger, the result, Kansas City. Um, it was Kansas City against St. Louis. It was Game Six of the World Series. Cardinals were ahead, one to zip. The Royals, Jorge Orta, led off the inning with the slow roller up the line and was clearly out by half a step, but Dinkinger called him safe and uh, the rest was kind of history. Yeah. I, I'm familiar with that one. I've seen that before. Um, boy, I, you know, and if, if I was to go off script, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head and I can't. Um, I, you got the tuck rule a couple of years ooh, ago. You got the tuck, catch. No catch. Tuck rule is Bryant. a good one. Yeah. I also think of it wasn't a big deal, but I remember the replacement refs with uh, the Green Bay Seattle game. Uh, with, yeah, that was yeah, bad. Too. Although yeah. those were replacement refs, so um, I'll go with uh, the World Series botch. I guess that that seems like a tough break to lose that kind of game on a play like that, and such a big game like that too. So, what you got, Roy? Yeah, I'm I'm right there with him. Uh, it's Don Denkinger for sure. Uh, look, I, I I don't mind that it cost the St. Louis Cardinals a World Series, but it cost the St. Louis Cardinals a World Series. Um, it cost them a game. Uh, Royals went on to win the next one, eleven nothing. Um, that that you know it, it, it cost the team a, a World Championship. Um, I, I think the call this past weekend in New Orleans is going to go down right there next to it because it cost the team a chance to go to a championship. It cost them a championship. Um, it cost me a trip. Oh, I, I Roy. <laughs> yeah, it cost him, it cost him a chance to go to the Super Bowl. So and it cost him an NFC title, and and this is so I think they're very similar. So so I'll go with Denkinger and uh, as my number one, and one A is uh, is the blown call in New Orleans. I I gotta say, you know, the World Series is bad, and the Saints game was bad. I think they're both top threes. But the more I read and the more documentaries I see about that 1972 Olympic men's basketball game, and I see how it affects guys like Doug Collins, who hit two free throws to put US, USA up by one. But then after that, you know, the Soviets got three separate attempts at an inbounds pass. On the third attempt, they were able to get free for an easy layup. Time expires. USA doesn't get the gold medal. That's pretty bad. That That's unbelievable that they would give them three different shots. Now, it's one thing to make a bad call you know in the world series that's one call or a, a pass interference that's one but they gave him three different tries so that's that's kind of mine yeah that's pretty bad so all right uh speaking of baseball mariano rivera the first member of the baseball hall of fame to be voted in unanimously congratulations to him congratulations to roy halliday congratulations to edgar martinez and mike Mussina. i don't really think he's a hall of famer but that's just my opinion um, let me go off the board a little bit, guys. Um, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are two interesting guys because they had great careers, but they obviously used steroids, whether they want to admit it or not. Sorry, guys, we, we kind of know. Um, do you think either one of those guys, none of the above, or do you pick one 
to go in the Hall of Fame moving forward in the next couple of years. Who, who are the three again? I'm sorry, just Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Okay, okay. Bob, are you Barry Bonds? I want to I said Bobby. Am I going first? Yes. Um, I, I, so I never followed baseball um, much, but I, when I was younger, I, I did. I was more into baseball. I collected the cards and all. And I remember growing up, Roger Clemens was one of the big names I was familiar with. Uh, Barry Bonds was also great too. Uh, but I don't know. I, I do think the whole them leaving them out is kind of dumb in a way. I mean, like everyone did it. They just happened to get caught, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I guess if I, it's either all or none, so I'll go with both of them. I can't wait to hear. Roy always surprised me. You know, he kind of surprised me earlier in the podcast because I, I thought you would be harder on the Saints. I thought you would be maybe, yeah, I don't think it was that bad. They had their chances. You kind of surprised me there, but I can't wait to hear your answer here. Um, neither one belongs in because they're <laughs> cheaters and they didn't need to cheat. Uh, yeah. Um, here's the thing. First of all, again, they will, both would have been Hall of Famers had they not cheated. Had they just gone naturally and done what they did, they might not have put up some of the numbers they put up, might not have lasted as long as they did, but they, they both would have been in the Hall of Fame anyway. Um, that's, that's my opinion. But my opinion is based in part on the fact that where, where Justin's wrong, with all due respect, Justin, is that not everybody did it. Greg, you know, Greg Maddox didn't do it. Um, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hundreds and hundreds of players who weren't cheating. And those guys, and, and, they, still, and they were still good enough to make it to the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, I, I just think that you, if you cheat, you, you, you don't belong. In the, you don't belong. That's not how this was done. It, it, it's just wrong. And um, I, I think they're getting their, their due, uh, what's due to them, in terms of not making it because they cheated and there was no reason for them to cheat. They were good enough without it. They didn't have to do it. And uh, if they never make it in, I won't feel sorry for them. They cheated you know, the game. I'm used to getting ganged up on. I'm going to gang up on Justin this time around. Roy and I are going to gang up on you, Justin. Here's my thing with this, okay? Um, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, Roy, no doubt about it. But I think there's a tier of steroid use. Like, to me – and you mentioned it, Barry, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens would have been Hall of Famers without the performance-enhancing drugs. But Sammy Sosa, Rafael Palmero, and Mark McGuire would not have been. You know, those guys, I think McGuire, you know, his problem was he couldn't stay healthy. He needed them, and that's no excuse. But my whole thing is, not only did Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens use them, but they've lied about it for years. You know, it's almost like Pete Rose I'm a big Pete Rose fan, but you lied too much, Pete. That's why you'll never get in the Hall of Fame. Lying on top of cheating is is bad. It almost goes back to, you know, this is the Bucks podcast. The biggest problem I had with Jameis Winston wasn't that he did the Uber thing two and a half years ago. It's that he lied about it within the last year. I don't like liars, and I don't like cheaters. And Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are liars and cheaters. And you know what? The bottom line here is if you take a vote, and this has been done, uh, if you take a poll of the living Hall of Famers, they will overwhelmingly agree that uh, the cheaters don't belong. That's not how they got there. Uh, yes. It's not how anybody should get there. It's not what that mantle is about. Um, that is an honor, and you don't earn it by cheating uh, in that form or fashion. You know, if you if you're you know choking up a little bit high in your bat or something, or 
or, or, or cheating in some, you know, some other small way, the way the game is within the rules of the game. You know, that, that we understand that. But uh, when you start, when it's performance enhancing, um, that that's different. And um, like I said, uh, most of the Hall of Famers uh, alive today uh, believe that uh, it's just not right for those guys to get in. And, you know, I'll give you a good argument. You know, Fred McGriff is not in the Hall of Fame either. And he Ridiculous. Because he's got 500-plus homers or yep. short of it. And, and, he, and he did it clean. That's a clean player. And he's not in, and he should be. And uh, that, Barry Bonds doesn't belong there because he cheated. How much did he cheat? We'll never know. That's just it. How much of an impact did cheating have? We'll never know. And that's why we can't really quantify it. And why it's not, to me, it's not fair to say that, oh, everybody did it and, you know, it was, it was accepted at the time. It shouldn't have been accepted at the time. And the fact that uh, they've changed the rules on it uh, shows that it's not accepted now. Two more things before we're out of here. You know, guys like Kurt Schilling get hurt because Kurt Schilling's just basically, uh, uh, he, he's, a, he's, a, he, <laughs> he's an outspoken guy and he irritates a lot of people with his tweets and his political views. But I don't care about any of that. If the guy played between the lines and he was such a historically great post-game player, I don't care what he did. And as long as he didn't hurt anybody, you know, if he, if, he, if he has bad judgment, that's on him. I think you shouldn't punish a guy for that. And I, I think it's ridiculous. I think Mariano Rivera should have been unanimous, but it's ridiculous that he's the first guy ever to be unanimous. You think, you know, Mariano Rivera is the best relief pitcher we've ever seen in baseball, but Willie Mays or, or Mickey Mantle or Sandy Koufax, those guys shouldn't have been unanimous. I mean, that that's that's what baseball writers have gotten it wrong for a long time. Not all of them because, you know, many of them, voted those guys in, their first ballot guys. But it's crazy to me that Mariano Rivera is the first unanimous guy ever. That is kind of strange. But you know what? It, it's also one of the reasons why more baseball writers are uh, showing their ballots now. They're, they're showing how they, they voted. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think we should we should see it because, again, look, everybody's got their own opinions on, on why they have certain guys in. But there are certain players who it's a no-brainer. Anybody can Anybody can figure it out. Uh, they're Hall of Famers. And yes, Mariano Rivera is one of them, but you know, so is Babe Ruth, so is Ty Cobb, uh, so is Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, take your pick. Uh, you know, there's a lot of guys in there that should have been unanimous, and you just, it just makes you wonder, you know, why weren't they voted for? Uh, you'd like to go back and ask that question. But now th- those questions can be asked. And see, now, Justin, now you know how it feels when you guys gang up on me. I did, to my credit, say I don't follow baseball. You did? You did? <laughs> That's you how it feels did. when uh, you got Elton John over Billy Joel. That's how That's it works. Right, man. That's how it works. All right, well, that wraps up. Uh, you know what? Here we are in late January, and we're almost at an hour, so we can fill time. It doesn't matter if it's January, July, or October, baby. Here on a few extra bucks. We get it done next week. We'll give you our Super Bowl picks and kind of break down that game and give you any Bucks breaking news, talk about their week at the Senior Bowl and moving ahead to the Combine, which is right around the corner as well. But for Justin Thomas and Roy Cummings, I'm Mike Neighbors. We love our title sponsors, House of Brews and Sea Dog Brewing Company. Great brews, great food, great service. Subscribe, please, to PeterPirates.com. We've had our best two weeks ever with our video updates on Bruce Arians and our podcast recently, so we appreciate that. We're going to be with you, Bucks fans, throughout the year. So subscribe to PeterPirates.com and uh, keep listening to our podcast. We appreciate it very much, and we'll talk to you again next week.